Well, good morning again, and um, it is uh, always a joy uh, to worship with you on the Lord's Day. And, uh, and it is uh, even more special when it's Communion Sunday because we get to focus our thoughts on Christ and remember His death and resurrection. Uh, but as we turn now to the study of God's Word, we, we look to His life, and we look specifically to His ministry. Uh, we've been going through the Gospel of Mark, and we want to continue with our study there. And so if you have your Bibles, please turn with me to the Gospel of Mark chapter 5. And as you're turning there, uh, I've said this before, but it bears repeating that Mark, who is a writer of this Gospel, he writes a historical account on the person and work of Jesus Christ. And he writes to tell us that Jesus was more than a mere man, but that he was in fact the Son of God. This is Mark's stated purpose here in this book, that he writes in such a way to convince us that Jesus was the God-man and that we are to believe in him. This was Mark's purpose in writing. It was also Matthew's purpose in writing. Luke's purpose, and it was John's purpose as well. These four writers all had the same goal, and that is to declare to the world that the one Savior from sin has come, and he is none other than Jesus Christ. And the four Gospels then lead us to the one great final conclusion recorded in John chapter 20, verse 31. This statement that sweeps across all four Gospels, where John says this, that these things are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Why? That believing you might have life in his name. The Gospels, in some sense, are apologetic in nature. And what I mean by that is these writers are writing history in such a way to prove to readers that Jesus was God. And one of the ways they proved to us that Jesus is who he claimed to be was through his signs and wonders, namely his miracles that he performed. One of the greatest evidences that Jesus was divine and that was recorded for us in history in showing that Jesus was the Son of God was that he performed miracles that he did what others could not do and displayed a power that could only belong to God. And of all the writers, Mark is the one who most notably brings this out in his gospel. In fact, there are more miracles recorded in Mark than in any other gospel, despite it being shortest in volume. And as we've seen, this gospel is called an action gospel. One of Mark's favorite words to use is immediately. Right? It is different from the other Gospels in that it focuses more on the works and the events of Jesus than his teachings. You notice in Mark's Gospel, there is no genealogy, there is no birth narrative, there are no long discourses or teachings of Jesus recorded. Every Gospel has a different emphasis, and this was Mark's. His focus was on the works of Christ, that we might learn of Jesus not so much by what he says, but by what he does. And up to the point in Mark's gospel, he has shown to us that Jesus was the one who has power, great power, 
He's shown us up to this point that he has power over nature. That Jesus has power over demons and of the evil spirits. And this morning, as we'll see in this passage, we see Jesus has power over disease and even death. And again, all this to show us and to prove once again that Jesus is Lord. Beginning in verses 21 and on, there are two more miracles that we will see performed by our Lord. There are two stories, actually, that are found here in this section. And it's interesting, the way it's arranged is like a sandwich. What Mark does is he begins with a story and leads into another story and then finishes the initial story that he began with. And so that within this passage, there's a miracle that takes place within a miracle. And this is done intentionally to teach us some important truths. And so I want to look at these stories really as one. And these stories involve two characters, and and I want to look at them together in just this one narrative, rather than breaking them up into isolated accounts. And I want to do so in hopes of showing how they're connected. This is such a rich section here of Mark chapter 5, and there's much that it teaches us about our Lord and who He is and, and how He works in the lives of His people. But there are wonderful lessons that we learn also about faith. And we learn them from these characters that we're introduced to. And so let me read this text as a whole. And it's a little long, but I want us to see how it all fits together, okay? So follow along as I read Mark chapter 5, verse 21, and on to verse 43. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. Verse 25, And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians, and had spent all that she had had, and was no better, but rather grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus, and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up. And she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. Verse 30, And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him, And told him the whole truth. And he said to her daughter, Your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. Verse 35 While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? 
But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Verse 41, taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age, and they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as we now come before your scriptures, we ask that you would help us. Lord, that you would illumine the truth of God's word to each and every person here. That we might come to see our sin and to see our Savior. And that we might be changed because of it. So, Lord, give us teachable hearts now. Speak to us and let us receive your word with much humility. Would you be honored in this time? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, what I want to walk, uh, what I want to do is I want to walk us through this story. And I want to give you several headings if you're taking notes to serve as an outline to help move us along. And we'll probably only be able to to get through two for this week. Uh, But the first thing that we find here in this story is that a desperate plea is made. The setting that Mark gives us is that Jesus has crossed over by boat to the other side of the lake. If you recall, our Lord was just on the side of the Gerasenes, the Gentile regions, and he was there to heal a demon-possessed man. And he would cast out the evil spirits and he would restore this man to sanity and make him whole. And rather than the people have faith, they had fear in what he had done. And this is often the response of people before the divine. That when you encounter someone so powerful and so set apart and yet so mysterious, it is a terrifying prospect. And so rather than have Jesus stay, they ask him to leave. And so he and his disciples, they get back on the boat. They cross back to the other side of the lake, which they originally came. And it's been a long couple of days up to this point, going back and forth. And yet as they're getting off the boat, we're told that immediately Jesus is met by a large crowd that has gathered there. And as he begins to move around, verse 24, the people follow him. They crowd him. They press upon him, it says. It's like a media frenzy has taken place. What Mark wants us to understand is that Jesus is being mobbed here. And I mentioned before that that we have many depictions of Jesus in our minds. That when we think of our Lord, that what comes to mind is maybe that of a king of a great teacher, of a selfless servant who ministers to the needs of so many. 
But early on in his ministry, Jesus is depicted as more of a celebrity than anything else. He is immensely popular. Word had spread of this miracle worker, and so they come from all over to see him. You think maybe that of a movie star or an athlete or even a political figure, and great crowds flock to see him, to touch him, to get a picture with him, as it were. They want to be part of this excitement. There is a crowd that we see in Mark's gospel wherever Jesus goes. And that's what's happening here. And it's the image that Mark wants to give us in mind here. Why? Because it will serve to give us a greater sense of the drama that will now take place. We're told that amidst this vast crowd, in verse 22, a man by the name of Jairus showed up. And we're told on four different occasions in this passage that he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. Now, what Mark wants us to understand is that he was one of the rulers of the synagogue. This was a very important figure. A synagogue ruler was a man of stature, of significance. He was greatly respected as a leader in the community. And yet notice his posture as he comes to Jesus. It says, seeing Jesus, he fell at his feet. Mark wants to show us this picture of a Jewish synagogue ruler kneeling at the feet of a Galilean carpenter. His posture is not fitting for his position. As a man of great dignity, no one would ever see this. So his posture tells us something. And what it tells us and what it spoke of was the posture of his heart, that he is sincere in coming to Christ. And his posture would be explained by his plea concerning his circumstances. And nobody can miss it. This man says something that will make every father understand why it is he acts like this. Here is the great crisis in this man's life and in every father's life. He falls at the feet of Jesus and he tells him in verse 33, Jesus, my little girl is dying. He's not there to learn something about Jesus or to satisfy his curiosity. He's not merely there to be with the crowd. He's there to plea for help. It's harder to imagine a greater crisis for a man than this, and and he is utterly desperate. His daughter, his precious little girl, was dying. And so he makes a plea to Jesus in verse 23. Come, And lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. We don't know how Jairus knew that Jesus could heal her or would even heal her. But somehow he had heard of Jesus who had performed miracles, who had healed before. This Jesus who had power over disease. Whatever it was, Jairus was convinced enough to ask Jesus in regards to his daughter. And we're told of Jesus' response to this plea in one simple statement. Verse 24, that when Jairus pleaded, he went with him. 
No questions asked, no explanation, no hesitation. There's a sense of urgency in all of this that arrests our Lord. A man comes and asks for help, and his daughter is dying, and Jesus goes with him at once. And so you imagine the scene, the crowds followed them, and they're jostling their way through them, and people are bumping them. There's not a moment to make, uh, to, to waste. And they make their way toward the home of Jairus, who has a 12-year-old who was dying. But then they're interrupted. Because all of a sudden, as they're making their way toward Jairus' house, there in the crowd is a lady who has a 12-year-old problem of her own. Mark tells us that in verse 25, and there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years. We're not told the details here, and it's not important necessarily to know. But somehow this woman had an internal bleeding problem. Some believe this was a uterine or menstrual hemorrhage. She had been bleeding for 12 years, and her condition was beyond the help of any physician that she had seen. We're told in verse 26 that she suffered much under many physicians, and has spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. She spent all that she had on these doctors, and instead of helping her, they made her condition worse. And what's important to understand is that not only was her problem physical, but it was deeply emotional and psychological as well, because her issue wasn't just physically debilitating. It was socially devastating. Because she was considered ceremonially unclean according to Jewish law. And the ceremonial laws of the Jews stated that actually any person in contact with a woman in this circumstance who was bleeding, that person would be rendered unclean as well. And as a result that person would have to be cast out from the community and would then have to go through cleansing rituals in order to be restated, reinstated into the community. But for her, there was no such hope. There was no reinstating. There was no cleansing because there was no stopping of this bleeding. So she is left as that of a social outcast. She is alienated from all people who knew her. She was forced to live her sad existence in poverty and loneliness. You think about our two characters here. And in many ways, she is as different from Jairus as can be. This woman was poor, and yet Jairus was likely wealthy. One was accepted because of his position and one was rejected because of her condition. Jairus had family that obviously he loved, and yet this woman had no one. She is cut off from her family and the community at large. One is respected, and the other is unwanted and even unwelcomed. Do you see how these two, they stood at opposite sides of the social spectrum? And their experiences in life up to this point have been vastly different, yet they had one thing in common. 
that one thing that brought them to the same place and to this point in time, and that was their affliction. What brings Jairus, who is up here, and this woman down here together, and what ultimately joins all people, irrespective of their ethnicity, of their gender, of their culture, of their social status, is suffering. Disease and hardships and death are the great levelers. They are no respecter of persons. And it is something that comes into each and every person's life, no matter who they are and where they're from. When we are introduced to these two, we can see how they, they are real people with real problems like us. And we can relate to them. Because suffering is a part of life for every one of us. And we have all experienced it. Someone once said that all we have to do is live long enough and we will suffer. And like these two, we know that suffering comes in many different forms. And whether it is a difficult marriage or divorce for some, Grief over the loss of a wayward child, loss of a job, financial difficulty, loneliness, abuse, a broken relationship, chronic pain, disease, or the death of a loved one we will inevitably endure these hardships in life. Pain and suffering is a certainty. And ultimately, the the great enemy, which is death, touches us all. And I was reminded of these things these last four months that I had been gone during my sabbatical. And I thought that maybe just being away from pastoral ministry that I could get away from affliction. And then several people I cared very deeply about passed away. And the hardest thing is that I didn't even get to say goodbye. In particular, I had to lay to rest my grandma in, in August. And my family, who aren't all believers, they asked me to officiate the funeral. And so I got to share a little bit about her life and remember her, and and I always had memories of her kindness and and her hard work and sacrifice and her her unwavering thoughtfulness. Uh, Even as her health was failing and when I would visit her, it touched me that she would make it a point to ask how I'm doing. You're the one dying in this bed, and yet you're asking about me? Your thoughts are about me. And my grandma wanted to know. She, and she would ask questions like, are you dating yet? I had to, to remind her, Grandma, I'm married. I think you were at my wedding, okay? Uh, she said, oh, good, okay. And then she would ask, you know, what job do you have? And I told her, I'm a pastor. And she said, oh, lawyer, that's good. They make a lot of money. I was like, no, Grandma, I'm a pastor. Oh, that's very different. Okay. So, <laughs> How come? 
Okay. She was always looking out uh, in her own way. And that was the sort of woman that I'll remember. And it was sad because uh, her condition worsened to the point that she couldn't remember me the last time I saw her. She was in pain up until she passed away, and she was ready to die. Sometimes it just feels like this isn't fair. It's hard seeing your loved ones die like that. And sometimes affliction comes so unexpectedly, and yet it is a part of life that we all go through. It is a reminder that we live in a fallen and broken world. And innately we know that things aren't as it should be. And as believers, we know what God's word says. Right? The Bible teaches us that this world was once perfect, and God, he saw all that he made and said that it was good. But sin entered the picture. And when Adam and Eve disobeyed God, their sin brought about evil and suffering and death in this world. It is sin's destructive effect on this world, both through men and women's actions and the curse upon creation that explains why there is so much pain and tragedy in this life and in the world in which we live. But God, he makes a promise that he will make all things right. That God will restore all things. That paradise will be regained. And Jesus coming begins this process of the redemption of the world. He comes and he is at work in reversing the curse. And the consummation will one day come when Jesus returns. And that is a hope that we have in our sufferings. And that hope is found in Christ. God sometimes allows for things to happen as a result of us living in this fallen world. And it's to drive us and bring us to our knees. To come to the end of ourselves as both Jairus and this woman do. So that we might then turn to Jesus. And know that in the darkness, Jesus came as a light. And we see hope in Christ. For these two in this story, they have been given a glimpse of that. Both are hurting and suffering, and they are desperate. And so they turn to Jesus. And that is exactly the place that our Lord wants every one of us to be. We saw Jairus' response, and we return to the story here, and we now see this woman's response. And what we see is a demonstrative faith. In this story, she becomes an example of faith that our Lord calls us to. It's one thing just to get to that point where we know that we are in need. It is another point to act in faith. And here is a woman who does that. She is one who has lost her health, her wealth, her social status. And so in verse 27, it says this, that she heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. 
For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. You notice her reasoning wasn't the most theologically or biblically sound. In actuality, she comes and she seems to approach Jesus with some superstition in her faith. One of the widespread beliefs of that day was that if someone could get close to a great man or a healer and touch his clothing, they would be healed. And she probably thought along those lines that touching the garment of Jesus would do something to her. And yet Mark, notice this, he makes no judgment on her orthodoxy or lack thereof. Rather, he highlights the one and important thing that is found in all true disciples of Jesus Christ. Verse 27, she heard, she came, and she touched. You notice all the action verbs there. She acted on what limited knowledge she had of Jesus. She thought to herself that for 12 years I've suffered And I've lost everything, and the only person I have left to turn to is Jesus. Because word on the street is, is that he has healed many people, and maybe he can heal me too. See, more important than the limited faith that she had was who she had faith in. And that was Christ. And so she comes to Jesus, and she touches him. And it says in verse 29, and immediately the flow of blood dried up. She felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. The hemorrhage stopped just like that. She was healed of her affliction. For the first time in 12 years, she felt whole again. And there was nothing less than a miracle of God. Because what happened to her didn't require time. The Lord didn't say, take this prescription, get some rest, and come back to me in a couple of days. No, it says that when she touched his garment, immediately she was healed of her disease. This was a divine act. And Jesus knew that this had happened as well. Because our Lord is all-knowing. Mark says in verse 30 that he perceived that power had gone out of him. He knew that he had been touched in a particular way and that a healing took place as a result. So that what happened with this interaction and this woman's healing, it wasn't some cosmic force that's admitted to this woman. It is not some detached transaction of power here. No, Jesus personally experiences and takes part in this healing as well, where he extends his power upon her body to cure her. There is some mystery to how all of this happens, but Jesus is very much involved and aware of all that is going on with this woman. And so knowing what has happened, immediately he turns to the crowd And says, who touched me? Who touched my garments? You realize he's asking, not necessarily to know, but to engage. He knows who it is. 
But our Lord is, is intending to draw this woman out of the crowd. What he's doing is he's pursuing her. He is keeping with his purpose that he comes to seek and to save the lost. Jesus is not content just to dispatch a miracle, to merely just give a gift and bless someone and move on. But he wants more. He wants a relationship with that person. In the kingdom of God, discipleship is not simply getting our needs met. Realize Christianity is not about getting a quick fix. Our faith is not about having that experience. It is about having an encounter with the living God to know him and to be known by him. Because our Lord is personal. And so again, he says, who touched me? And the disciples' response is understandable, right? They ask in verse 31, you say, who touched me? Jesus, everyone is touching you. What do you mean, okay? But only one touched him in this particular way. Jesus is not dissuaded in the least bit, and he persists in everyone knowing who the culprit is that touched him. And so he looks upon the crowd, and he looks up and down, and he's asking, and unable to avoid the searching gaze of Jesus. This woman, it says, in fear and trembling, verse 33, falls down at the feet of our Lord. You understand all the emotions that she has. Twelve years of suffering, of rejection, of shame, of having nothing, of there being no hope, and with one touch, everything changes. She is healed. And so this woman falls at the feet of Jesus, and you notice the phrase there, she told him the whole truth. She tells Jesus everything. She pours out her heart to him about her problem and why she touched him and what had happened to her. And she does so not for Jesus' sake, but the Lord would have her do it for her sake because her words would be a public testimony of what God had done in her life. This is what faith always entails. It is a demonstrable faith. Our Lord doesn't intend for our faith to be private. He calls for action. And he wants for us to tell others the Lord has done great things. And he wants us to testify of how he has had mercy on us sinners. And so she testifies to all of this. And in fact, it was her telling everything that allowed Mark to give us the first part of the story, right? Because otherwise, how would he know her background? So telling Jesus everything, notice how our Lord responds. What does he say? Daughter. Now, who's listening to this? Jairus. What's his problem? 12-year-old daughter. Again, we will see how these two stories are intertwined next time. But the Lord is very mindful about who is there. And there's a lesson that he wants Jairus to learn. 
Jesus says, daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be free. The Lord wanted to affirm that it wasn't the touch of a finger that healed this woman. It was the touch of faith. There were plenty of people who touched Jesus that day, who were shoving and pushing on that occasion. See, if it was simply just an arbitrary touch, then all kinds of people would be out reporting healings that had taken place because power had somehow been emanating from Jesus. But it wasn't that at all. It was faith that our Lord requires that heals this woman. And this woman is really an example of how simple this faith can be that our Lord requires. You notice her faith was uninformed. It was presumptuous. It was superstitious. But it was real. And Christ honored that imperfect faith. And God still does the same today. We know in our own lives that beginning faith is often uninformed. It is imperfect. It is shallow about the person of Christ, about who the Godhead is, about how salvation works, about the scriptures. But the foggy understanding that we begin with often lead to a deep and informed trust in God over the course of our Christian life so that we can take heart with our weak faith at times. You notice after this woman spoke, the the Lord didn't tell this woman, lady, go take Christianity 101 and come back to me when you really know who I am, okay? Go learn some theology. Go study the Bible some more, okay? Learn it from cover to cover, and then come back to me. No, he doesn't say that. He says, daughter, this is the only recorded instance in the New Testament that Jesus says, daughter, to a woman. And it was confirmation that she had entered a relationship with God. Despite her weak faith. He says, daughter, your faith, however imperfect it is, it has healed you. One doesn't need to have it all figured out to possess a faith which pleases God. This is why a child can trust in the Lord. This is why God often saves those who have no theology at all. This is not to minimize a deep understanding of the word. This is not to downplay the need for us to grow in the knowledge and grace of God. This doesn't take away the fact that we are all called to love God's word, to know it well, to grow in it, Those are important things. In fact, they are expected of you, especially for those of you who have been believers for a long time. But the point is, a faith that pleases God doesn't belong to someone who has it all figured out. I love what Charles Spurgeon says of this woman, and listen to what he says. He says, but here is the great marvel of it. Little as was her knowledge, Great as was her unbelief, and astounding as was her misconception of our Lord. Yet her faith, because it was real faith, saved her. If we have faith as a grain of mustard seed, there is life in that grain, and die it cannot. End quote. You see, faith 
it can be as ignorant and flawed. And notice this, even as self-centered as this woman's. You notice that, that she wanted healing more than the healer himself. And this is, this is so typical of beginning faith. We often come to Jesus initially because of some problem. When we reach out to him with stumbling faith, and the amazing thing is we end up getting more than we bargain for. We go on to meet a God who loves us more than we can ever have imagined being loved. And we in turn grow to know him, to trust him, to love him in return. And that's often how faith works. We begin by wanting to be saved from our sin and judgment. And we come to fall in love with Jesus. Our Lord wanted more than to bless this woman and heal her. He wants to meet with her as he does with all sinners. This is a great lesson on faith. Really, this woman is an illustration of all of humanity. What you need to know, if you are in this room, is that you have a sickness like this woman. But it is, it is a sickness that runs deeper than physically. It is your sin. You are broken and you are flawed. And there is no remedy apart from Christ. And we can often spend all our resources trying to find remedies and try these remedies that do not work. And whether they are good deeds, whether it's spirituality or trying some religion and having some sort of experience We try all these things when ultimately what we need is Christ. And in his love, he came into our broken world and he would die on the cross for your sin. And he rose to life so that we might be healed not only physically but spiritually to be cleansed of our sin and to enter a relationship with God. See, we need to touch this Jesus who loves you and we touch him with faith. And when we do so, he will not turn away from us. If you haven't come to Jesus just yet, he is calling you this day to turn from your sin and to turn to Christ that you may be healed and forgiven of all sin and be saved unto the Lord. For those who are believers who have come to faith, you notice here that we are called to continue to walk in this same faith. Amidst the afflictions that will come, would we never stop looking to Christ in moments of our greatest need? Because He is there, and He is for us, and He is at work to change us. And and sometimes... He's changing us even through pain and suffering. And in those times we we waver in our faith, when we are at the end of the rope, we turn back to his word and we are reminded of why we need to have faith again. This encounter with this woman serves to teach us valuable lessons of who God is and the one that we place our faith in. 
In fact, it would actually be the same lessons that Jesus wanted to give Jairus, right, through what he was doing with this woman. Remember, they were supposed to be on their way to see his dying daughter. And meanwhile, Jairus is standing by, and he's waiting anxiously as his daughter dies. But the Lord is unhurried, and he knew that Jairus needed to learn something first to remind us that we can trust this God. And we'll get to Jairus' story next time. And we'll learn some great lessons there. With that, let's pray. Father, we do thank you that the Lord Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we thank you, Lord, that he still has power to heal sick souls, those who are plagued by sin that are leading them to destruction. Lord, that it was by his wounds that we have been healed. For those, Lord, who do not have faith yet, give them faith to believe. Give them eyes to see their sin and their need for a Savior, and that Savior is Christ. We thank you, Lord, for making us whole, for saving us, and drawing us to yourself because of what Jesus has done. Deepen our trust in you as we go and navigate, Lord, through the challenges of life. And Lord, we pray that you would change us to be more like your son, and that we might testify to your grace and bring glory and honor to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.